From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Eating disorders often arise during the teenage years and more often in girls than boys. Most eating disorders involve focusing too much on your body weight, your body shape, and food, leading to dangerous eating behaviors. We'll debunk common myths and learn what to look for from an adolescent eating disorder specialist. Hiding a lot behind health these days, I think. People wanting to go gluten-free or vegan or get in shape for track. Also on the program, guest host Dr. Sanj Kakar joins the show as we hear how new colon cancer screening methods are making it more palatable for patients. And just how clean does your baby need to be? We'll discuss the hygiene hypothesis. All that along with this week's health and medical news right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Eating disorders, unfortunately, they often develop in teenagers and young adults, although they can develop at any age. And most eating disorders involve focusing too much on your weight, your body shape, what you're eating. Eating disorders can actually harm the heart, the digestive system, the bones, the teeth, the mouth, and even lead to other diseases, other problems. Don't even think about that. No, yeah, not but good. But with treatment, patients can return to healthier eating habits and sometimes reverse serious complications caused by that eating disorder. Here to discuss warning signs and treatment of adolescent eating disorders is Mayo Clinic psychologist Dr. Jocelyn Lebo. Welcome to the program, Dr. Lebo. It's great to have you here. Oh, thanks for having me. And you're a Dr. Lebo because you have a Ph.D. in psychology, right? That's right. Yep. And then uh, how did you get interested in eating disorders, or did you come here and they said, hey, we need somebody to... <laughs> <laughs> um, no, actually, I've I've worked with adolescents pretty much my whole career, um, and I kind of started looking for positions where, where the teenagers were, and, and eating disorders was a place where a lot of them were kind of ending up, and it... It's such an interesting area and such an understudied area, I kind of stuck. So is, you see a lot, huh? I do. I do. Is it becoming more and more prevalent? You know, it's hard to say. I think so. Um, I also think our detection is getting a little bit better. Um, people are getting more aware. Um, but but I'm seeing more and more, and I'm seeing more variety. You know, that used to be the the myth would be, oh, this is a, this is a rich white girl disease. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm seeing younger kids. I'm seeing both genders, every race, every SES. You know, it, it's really affecting, I think, a broad range of people. You know, when uh, the lay public thinks of eating disorders, and myself included, the things that, that come to mind are anorexia and bulimia. Mm-hmm. Um, are there others? Or are those the two main ones? And I think this is where our diagnostic system has kind of done us a disservice, as well as the sort of made-for-TV movies. Mm. Um, anorexia and bulimia exist. They're incredibly serious. But I would say the majority of eating disorders kind of fall in between. There's this category that we've just renamed, um, Other Specified Feeding and Eating Disorders. It's far too long of a name. But basically, it's y- you have some of the features of anorexia, but maybe not all of them, or some of bulimia and anorexia, or you're doing something completely different. But... That's what we see the most of, especially in younger children. A combination of the two? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and if well, I should just step back, because if some people aren't aware of what they are, yes. what is anorexia and what is bulimia? So anorexia is, is probably the most the most well-known of the eating disorders, and that's just the classic um, refusal to maintain a healthy weight, um, this distorted body image where you're incredibly underweight, but you think that you're 
um, much, much too heavy. Okay. Um, it can come with um, physical signs like a loss of a period, but it doesn't have to. Um, and it's really just this refusal to intake enough food. And then bulimia is the one where you, you get the, the binging and the purging behaviors, um, the um, inducing vomiting or using laxatives. Um, what we see usually, especially in kids, is it's not so classic. You know, it's, it's a kid, rarely do we see a kid who's just refusing to eat or, or a kid who is binging and purging really regularly. It's a combo. It's, it's, and it's, and it's sneakier than that. It's cutting out snacks or being really concerned with being super healthy to the expense of their growth curve. And uh, we said uh, it's stereotypically known as a white girl's, rich girl's. It is, are we only talking girls or are there boys that are having this problem too? There are boys. Um, and, and that's something as well that I think people are starting to become more and more aware of. Boys have these eating disorders and, and they look a little bit different sometimes, but sometimes they look pretty classic. Um, wanting to be really healthy, wanting to be really built, or just the classic wanting to be thinner. Um, and it's not just, you know, I've had people, people I think are aware that certain populations like wrestlers have more eating mm. concerns, but it's really starting to be more broad um, mm. in boys too. Interesting phrase that you use, distorted body image, um, and you implied that a, a young girl or, or boy um, with anorexia would look in the mirror, might look in the mirror and say, I'm too fat. I'm yeah. too heavy. When you and I would look at them and say, "You're you're skinny." Yes. Yep. Wow. And uh, how did how how do you explain that? I mean, man, <laughs> if she knew, can't you yeah. say, "Let's go over the mirror and check this out <laughs> together." It's, you know, I think that's the thing that one of the things that people don't really get about eating disorders is it's truly a it's truly distorted. It's they are not seeing what you see when they look really? at themselves. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. On the on the flip side of that, or I think the other thing that I want to point out. Um, and this is sort of my own area of research interest, so I apologize in advance. <laughs> no, that's okay. Um, we want to hear about it. Um, so I do think that also what's ha- what we're seeing a lot of is kids who don't look incredibly skinny. That you know, if you eyeball them, you wouldn't say, "Oh, that 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 child needs to gain weight. That child's emaciated." But they're either failing to grow, um, or they've lost weight from where they're supposed to track, which might be a little bit higher than the average kid. And so, so kids coming into their pediatrician or their or their doctor, having lost 30 pounds but still tracking at that 50th BMI percent. How can you tell though that a teenager or a preteen is not gaining weight, not growing like mm-hmm. they should? They should because of eating disorder. I got to tell you, my kid has got an orthodontic thing going on oh, that he doesn't eat nearly enough. He can't wait for that appliance to get out of there. Yep. And I said, it's, I want to know how much weight he's going to gain when that's gone. <laughs> I mean, so there are so many things that are going on with kids. How yes. can you tell it's an eating disorder? Gosh, it's so hard. I, I, I think that that's part of what makes these disorders so tricky. Um, I think the main thing, you know, and, and kids with eating disorders will, um, it's not even, it's not even that they're, they're being dishonest, but they'll, they'll think, oh, the minute I get out of this doctor's office, I can do it. I can, I can eat. I, you know, I can gain the weight. I can do it. The, I guess the proof is in the pudding, to use like my grandma's expression. <laughs> um, you know, if they actually can, then it's not an eating disorder. If your son gets his braces off yeah. and immediately is like pounding Big Macs, like you're good, you're good. <laughs> oh no, not, not Big Macs, like corn on the cob, corn on the cob, <laughs> and taffy, and apples. Or yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, then you're fine. And so sometimes, sort of a test that we do is we say, okay, you know what, you're underweight. We don't know why. You're saying it's because of your braces mm-hmm. or because you've been sick, you know, come back in a week and, and put on a pound, you know, and or put on two pounds or put on, you know, a, a reasonable amount of weight. Um, 
and, and whether they're able to do that or not, or whether there's a million excuses. But these disorders are sneaky, so it's, it's really, really difficult. So as a parent, um, what are the warning signs? Mm-hmm. Um, if your child does what, should you be concerned about a, an e- eating disorder, or do they behave in some particular way? Help us with that. Gosh. Um, so the main one is changes to eating habits. And like I said, rarely do kids just stop eating. And in fact, dinner, you know, the most common family meal is usually the last meal that's impacted. Mm. But um, are are they eating snacks? Are they suddenly really concerned with being healthy? It's hiding a lot behind health these days, I think. Mm -hmm. People wanting to go gluten-free or vegan or get in shape for track. And and at first, as a parent, you're like, great. Yeah, that sounds like a great idea. Totally. Apple slices and a set of Twinkies, like, Mm -hmm. sign me up. Um, But does it start to become, is it starting to look rigid? You know, Teenagers and kids are supposed to snack. They're supposed to be able to be flexible. Um, so that's a big one. Um, fatigue, any sort of just low energy. Um, and that's a tough one, too, because it can be a lot of different things. But um, if they're unable to keep up with the things that they used to like doing, um, that's another sign that something's up, at least. Nothing very specific, right? That's why it's difficult for a parent and difficult for you, too. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's incredibly, incredibly difficult. Adolescent eating disorders expert, Dr. Jocelyn Lebo, we need to take a short break. When we come back, we'll talk more about the treatment of eating disorders in adolescence. And, myth or matter of fact, you can tell by looking at someone if they have an eating disorder. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. We are back talking about eating disorders with a Mayo Clinic expert, psychologist, Dr. Jocelyn Lebo. So, Dr. Lebo, myth or matter of fact, you can tell by looking at someone if they have an eating disorder. Oh, total myth. <laughs> Biggest myth ever. Oh, well, well yeah, you were solid on that yeah, response. The grandparents yeah. would say, oh, they're just so healthy. Yeah. <laughs> nope. And, and that is, we see, I think by the time, especially if you're a kid, mm-hmm. by the time you look like you have an eating disorder or something, it is progressed to a really, really extreme point. There's one thing that I ever learned from all those after-school specials and uh, from reading, you know, my Good Housekeeping magazine. <laughs> it's that lots of times um, kids will, will, and adults too, will develop eating disorders because of a control mechanism. They need to be able to control something. And that's my five cents worth of whatever I know about it. Is that a, is that a big part of this or the key? So that's a theory. And I think that there are definitely some kids where it's a piece of it, you know, um, We see a lot of kids who, it's not so much about controlling their environment, it's about controlling their emotions. They're anxious kids, they're um, kids who have really extreme feelings, and and when you are focusing on your food and when you're not eating, those voices kind of tend to quiet down. Your brain starts to just be functioning less efficiently, um, and you actually feel things less strongly. So in that way, yes, but the main thing is we don't know. There's no one sort of eating disorder paradigm. Um, you know, some kids, it's about control. Some kids, you know, the other, one of the other theories is they're afraid to grow up. They don't want to develop and get older. And, you know, I've had a couple kids for whom that's fit. Wow. Um, but not everyone, you know, there are some kids who 
back into it accidentally. You know, we have I have a couple patients who, whether it's because they started on a medication that came with some appetite suppressant side effects or... Um, oh, those wrestlers you mentioned, yes. you know, kids that have to control their weight for a sport. Yes, yes. And, and then they can go into it with absolutely no no intention of, of even losing a lot of weight. But, but once you get to a certain point of starvation, you physiologically shift. And, and anybody, any person, healthy adult... If you lose enough weight, your brain shifts into what we call starvation mode. Wow. Yeah. So how do how do uh, kids get to you? Mm-hmm. So is it a, a concerned parent who takes their child to their family physician and they suspect an eating disorder and then they refer them to you? And once they get to you, how do you make the decision about whether or not they got it? Oh, man. Um, <laughs> uh, Sorry. Three-part question. I was going to say. Uh, okay. So first of all, how they get to me, you know, it really, it usually is we get a lot of pediatricians referring a lot of family medicine doctors which is great. We see concerned parents, coaches, every once in a while it's a patient saying something's not right, but but that's rare. Um, it's usually a concerned adult. Yeah, that's a pretty life. self-aware teenager. Yes. Those are... Those are exciting when those come into the <laughs> office. Um, and then once they're once they're in my office, you know, there, there's a degree of medical stability that's needed for any type of treatment. If a kid is medically compromised, which can happen with these disorders, they have to go to inpatient treatment for at least to get stable. Um, but if they're able to do it, you know, the, the gold standard treatment for teenagers is a family-based approach. It's called family-based treatment. For both anorexia and bulimia? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And it, it's sometimes called the Maudsley approach. And really, it's, it's an outpatient treatment where you use parents to help almost like, almost to act as surrogate nurses on a unit to help okay. their kids. Okay. I'm going to... Because I'm a mom, I'll Bring just it. step right underneath the bus on this one and say, well, what if it's the parents that are a big part of the problem? Oh, man. Okay, so number Sorry. no number one <laughs> myth about eating disorders, I'm glad, it is rarely the parents' fault. And I say rarely because every once in a while you get something very extreme. But that, I think, is the biggest misconception is that it's a frigid mom or a parent who has their own eating stuff or a super controlling family. That's not the case. Um it is rare that I see a family that just can't help their kid once they're given the tools. Really? To Isn't that interesting? That's yeah. the biggest myth about mm-hmm. eating disorders mm-hmm. is it's the parent's fault. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that that guilt and shame is, I think, what keeps some parents from coming to treatment sooner because they feel like it might be their fault. So, all right, they're in your office. Yes. Uh, do you have a questionnaire? I mean, like, you oh. know, kids uh, who, for depression, if they they fill out a questionnaire and then they get a score and then the doctor says, well, yeah, I think you're depressed or you're moderately depressed or mildly, et cetera. So what, what do you do? Is it just a talk session and then you figure out, yep, you've got it? So, and this was the third party. I forgot this prong, the question. <laughs> um, um, it's, you know, the difference between eating disorders and depression or anxiety is a lot of eating disorders are what we call egocentric. That means that they feel good for the teenager to maintain. And so questionnaires, there are some, and they're, they're helpful, but they're not always the, the same Definitive, sort of huh? Yep. Yeah. It's got to be an interview, I think, um, to truly, you know, a screener might flag somebody, but then to, to truly parse it out. The problem with eating disorders, though, is, you know, if you've got a drinking problem or smoking cigarettes, you stop with the drinking, yeah. whatever, but you have to keep eating. Totally. You can't go cold <laughs> turkey. So how do you manage that? It's really, it's why I have a job. I think. <laughs> it's so difficult. You know, and you think of all that we have tied up in food, mm-hmm. you know, social and family and, and all those things suffer when you have an eating disorder because you pull back because of the food element. You don't go to friends' houses. You don't mm-hmm. go to family parties. And so getting that back is a lot of what I do. 
Okay. And it's not just one session, because if it was, you know, you, you know, one and done, you you would be uh, on the golf course. That's, that's there, right. Well, the swimming pool. Yeah. Well, that's what I was going to ask about because I think it has to be harder than we're unfortunate than it really seems to be. And that is, you know, th- that is so true. I think the the a couple of things. So first of all, another big myth about eating disorders is that it's any sort of a choice. It's why don't you just start eating? Why don't you just have a sandwich? If oh, spend five days with me, I'll get that weight back on you. It's not bad. It's an illness, um, and it's a really serious one. And I think what you're what you're talking about, um, the rates of of successful treatment for anorexia in adults are really low. They're mm-hmm. really poor. For kids, it's much better. It's much more optimistic if you get in early. Um, and the treatment is intensive. You know, it's it's at least weekly treatment. It sometimes takes a, a long time, depending on, mm-hmm. on how far progressed things are. But it can work, and it can work for. Um, the child or adolescent's life. It, it's 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 the sort of small light at the end of the tunnel, you know. And so that's why, too, um, encouraging parents, encouraging, encouraging providers to intervene early is crucial. Are there any other myths about eating disorders that we haven't covered? I don't know. You've hit some pretty I, good so, yeah. ones already. Sorry, that's yeah, been, <laughs> I, I think I, I, the main those are the main ones. I'd have to say, not parents' fault. It's not necessarily about weight. Um, not just girls. And not just girls. Mm-hmm. And so finally, what are final things if parents are sitting and thinking, wow, actually this might be something that's happening at our house, or a grandparent, um, what should they do? Call someone. Call your pediatrician. Make an appointment with a specialist. Work with a mental health professional or a medical professional. Some medical professionals know more about this than others. Um, and so it might be... That, you know, you go to your doctor, you know, who's like, oh, don't worry about it. You know, kids will be kids. It's he or she will grow out of it. You may have to advocate as a parent. But I would say follow up with a specialist. Would you say that if you can get the parents or other family members involved, the treatment is likely to be more successful? Yes. Absolutely. No question about it. So you, you said counseling and maybe uh, once a week when you sit down with these kids. Mm-hmm. How often... Uh, do the parents come in, or other family members? So for the treatment I do, they come most of the time. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Once if, a week. If a kid is if a kid is weight restored and doing pretty well with the eating part, it can be we, you can switch into individual. Um, but for the beginning, it's a it's a family affair. All right, it's not the parents' fault, but they can certainly help when it comes to treatment. That is exactly the take home point. All right, Dr. Jocelyn Lebo, adolescent eating disorder specialist. So much to have, so great to have you with us. Thank Thanks. you so much for inviting me. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, improved colon cancer screening options are making it easier for patients. And later on in the show, babies and germs. Just how clean does your baby need to be? Yeah, Dr. Sanchkacker will be joining us for those topics. Do you have a health-related question you'd like us to answer or a topic you'd like us to cover? You can tweet us anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or send an email to mayoclinicradio at mayo.edu. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams with your Mayo Clinic Minute. 
Folic acid, a mineral found in leafy greens, is important for pregnant women and their unborn babies. We know that if there is inadequate folic acid in your diet, you can have an increased risk of something called a neural tube defect or spina bifida. Mayo Clinic family medicine specialist Dr. Alva Roche-Green says a study funded by the National Institutes of Health reveals another reason pregnant women should take folic acid. Those with low folic acid levels had a 45% increased risk of having a baby um, that developed obesity later in life uh, compared to the other 75% of the women. And women who had low folic acid levels and were also obese had an even greater risk of having an obese child. The bottom line, researchers continue to learn more about how nutrition in pregnancy impacts babies. The FDA recommends pregnant women get 1,000 micrograms of folic acid every day. And now let's talk about your heart health. Maybe you've heard about the issue with trans fats. They can increase your risk of cardiovascular disease because they raise your LDL or bad cholesterol and lower your LDL or good cholesterol. Now, for these reasons, dietary experts advise that you avoid consuming trans fats. The World Health Organization recommends limiting trans fats to less than 1% of your total calories. So that means if you consume 2,000 calories a day, aim for no more than 20 of those calories coming from trans fats. Now, that is not much. So to avoid trans fats, read the list of ingredients and also choose foods that do not contain partially hydrogenated oils. When the term hydrogenated appears on the label, it means the fat's saturated, and that's not good. So both trans fats and saturated fats increase the risk of heart disease. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Sanj Kakar. And I'm Tracy McRae. According to the Centers for Disease Control, colorectal cancer is the second leading killer among cancers that affect both men and women. But it doesn't have to be that way. Proper screening can find precancerous polyps and also detect cancers early when treatment often leads to a cure. Yes, over 25% of adults age 50 and above have never been screened for colorectal cancer. New advances that have made the screening process easier may be one way to improve detection rates. Here to discuss colon screening is Mayo Clinic gastroenterologist Dr. Connor Loftus. Welcome to the program, Dr. Loftus. It's nice to meet you. Thank you very much for the invitation to uh, speak on this uh, important topic. I, I wondered whether I was really the right person to speak about this, but just yesterday in my mailbox, I received a note from a grateful patient, and it was addressed to Colon Loftus, <laughs> C-O-L-O-N. I, guess I said, I am the man for this, obviously, so yes. I made a lasting impression on that patient. And one of the things I want to speak about today is really the new methodologies for screening for colon cancer. Many patients simply fear undergoing preparation or fear having a tube uh, entered into the rectum, and, and I would too if I didn't know anything about it. But um, work at Mayo Clinic over, really it's been over three decades that our colleague in gastroenterology, Dr. David Alquist, has been evolving a technique to uh, look for the DNA which is shed from polyps and tumors into the stool of patients who have these conditions. And and this is basically uh, microscopic amounts of the tumor uh, or polyp which are shed, and we can, deter- we can pick that up very sensitively in stool. This is a test which is now available to average-risk individuals, so those who don't have a family history of polyps. When it comes to age 50, 
and your doctor is encouraging you to do colonoscopy, if that's something that you're, I'm simply not going to do it, <laughs> you can come in and say, listen, how about that stool DNA test? It's called ColoGuard. Uh, am I eligible for that? And is that something that patients, they can ask for that now, that we're at the stage where they can either say, let's give this a try? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Particularly here uh, in, in Mayo Clinic, um, they, they can ask for it from their physician. They go home, they submit the stool sample, the result comes back to the physician. And one of the questions comes up is, well, is it as good as colonoscopy? Uh, and the answer, in short, is for for colon cancer, it really is, uh, and for significant large polyps. So detection of the of large polyps and cancers with Cologuard is effectively as, as accurate as colonoscopy for the important lesions. For small polyps, perhaps not quite as good, but you can make the argument that small polyps may not matter as much anyway. You know, could a small polyp become a large polyp if left over time? That comes to what do we do if a patient has a cologar test and it's negative? Where that patient would have had colonoscopy perhaps and it was negative, they would go for 10 years. We do cologuard every three years just to cover that possibility of a small polyp maybe being ended or getting larger. Wow, so that's a, that's a major advancement. I'm looking forward to the cologuard. Yeah, you're off the hook there, Dr. Kakar. <laughs> but, uh, but Dr. Loftus, you mentioned that cologuard may not be for everybody. Who, who would it not be applicable for? Yeah, very important question. So, um, in the current recommendations, and I say that because these may change in the future, in the current recommendations, we recommend Cologuard for an average risk individual. So that person um, who has not had a family history. So if your mother or father or brothers or sisters have had colon cancer or polyps, you're not a candidate for this. This is for a person who has no family history and has never had polyps themselves in the past. I haven't had one yet, but what I have learned is that the prep is what you worry about. Do you still have to do the prep with Cologuard? Yeah, great question. We get a lot of questions about prep. So uh, short answer is no. Hmm. You do not have to do a preparation for Cologuard. And in actual fact, of course, we want to obtain those stool samples to look for the DNA in it. If you are not a candidate for Cologuard, and you are undergoing colonoscopy, um, you know, there are advances in the preparation within recent years that make it more palatable. Really? Um, absolutely. All of a sudden, people's ears. <laughs> I sh- and I should say, because this, we have nine, uh, 90-plus stations that carry this show, so there might be some places where people go and they don't have access to Cologuard. So let's talk right. about those prep options. So a couple of things. The first is our standard preparation that we've used for years. You know, patients refer to the four liters or the gallon of liquid that I have to ingest, and the, the first step was that that has been, uh, for many, cut from four liters of material ingested to two liters. Okay. Okay, so 50% better. <laughs> but still, for many, it's the actual taste of the material. It's a, it's a very salty, unpalatable taste. And so for those patients, now uh, we're oftentimes using a Miralax preparation combined with Gatorade. Patients can absolutely go to their doctors and say, okay, instead of that terribly vile two or four liters of liquid, can I, you know, take the Miralax Gatorade preparation? Absolutely ask for that. It's a good option. So if uh, patients out there are listening to this and they want to see if they're applicable to Cologuard or they can get it locally, 
how should they find out more about it? So the, the first step is simply to ask your primary care provider um, if they uh, are not knowledgeable in Collegard, the um, they can access the Mayo Clinic website, and there is lots of information on the Mayo Clinic website about it. Um, and uh, their primary care providers can uh, order through Mayo Clinic uh, from there. And is that uh, covered by insurance? It is. It is covered by insurance. Um, the cost, uh, you know, colonoscopy, unfortunately, is a fairly invasive study with a sedation and anesthesia. And, it, you know, like any uh, test like this, it gets into the thousands of dollars. A Cologuard is uh, in the in the uh, hundreds of dollars range, um, but it is covered by insurance, and it is um, CMS, Medicare approved uh, at the every three-year interval. So this is covered, and it's a, a great option. I would say for those folks who particularly are not going to do anything in terms of uh, looking for, for colon cancer, for those that are willing to do colonoscopy, it is a standard of care to still go for colonoscopy uh, because we can deal with the lesions that we've, you know. It, of course, if a cologuard is positive, you end up mm-hmm. having colonoscopy. If a cologuard is negative, you can go for three years. But I would still say colonoscopy is a standard of care. If a person is not willing to do colonoscopy, cologuard is a great option. And just so we understand... If you don't have risk factors, when should you start screening and when do you stop? The vast majority of people do not have risk factors, firstly. So for those individuals, you start at 50 years of age. Mm-hmm. And if you do colonoscopy and it's negative, it's every 10 years. The end point really is quite variable because we may see an individual in clinic who is 80 years of age and they look like a million bucks. We would continue with colonoscopy. On the other hand, you may see, see a patient who is 70 and they've got significant cardiac or respiratory disease and, mm-hmm. and it may not be the best thing. So you really have to individualize the, the approach um, in each patient in terms of uh, stopping colon screening. We've been talking about colon screening options with gastroenterologist Dr. Connor Loftus. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Loftus. Thank you very much. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, kids and germs, just how clean should a baby be? You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Sanj Kakar. And I'm Tracy McRae. New parents will do everything they can do to protect their child, from car seats to safe sleep to making sure that only clean hands touch their child. (laughs) But have we taken cleanliness too far? Too far indeed. The hygiene hypothesis suggests that children who have more exposure to germs and certain infections at a very early age develop immune systems that are better suited to differentiating harmless substances from harmful substances. In this theory, exposure to certain germs teaches the immune system not to overreact. So here's what we need to know, dad of a lot of babies over there. (laughs) Just how clean does your baby need to be? Here to discuss this is Mayo Clinic pediatrician and the star of Mayo's Facebook Live's <laughs> Ask Mayo Mum segments, Dr. Angela Matke. Welcome to the program, Dr. Matke. Thanks for having me today. <laughs> so the uh, hygiene hypothesis, is it bunker? I, I sign on to it because it worked for me, but what do you say? I think a lot of the evidence and the science over the, the last 10 to 20 years really does point to we need to have frequent exposures to microbes in our environment. So microbes are any viruses, bacteria um, that would be in your environment that you come in contact with. And what we call the things that they actually come in contact with are antigens. And children and all of us need lots of exposures of these, so our immune system knows how to respond. 
to when something harmful comes in and not overreact to something that's going to be innocuous like pet dander mm-hmm. or something like that. And is that why people end up developing allergies? Is that one of the theories? It's one of the theories. I mean, there's a lot of factors we think that go into it. And there's not one thing that you can point to for a reason why someone develops allergies or asthma. Um, But it certainly um, has been shown in studies that for children that have early exposure, so maybe children that live on the farms, um, have multiple siblings at home, they are at lower risk for the development of asthma, um, sometimes for allergies and uh, for food allergies and eczema as well. So this makes complete sense now. My my aunts were always right. Growing up as a child would go to holiday to India, mm-hmm. and my sister and I would always get sick, and my cousins would never be sick. <laughs> right. So clearly they had early exposure to these antigens. Right. So every day uh, we, we bath our kids. Should we be doing that every single day? No, you don't have to. You could actually cut down on your, on your daily routine with the kids a little bit. Um, it's starting with infants. Um, they don't need to be bathed daily. So a couple times a week is really all that infants need. It's pretty simple. Just look at your children. If they look physically dirty, that's a good time to bathe them. Okay? You can <laughs> if just, they smell physically right. dirty, if they smell. also. <laughs> but if it's part of your routine and if it's part of something that works really well with your family, helps kids unwind, there's not a reason why you can't do it daily. Um, but if you're going to do it, you just want to make sure that you're doing a good moisturizer afterwards. There's a difference, though, between uh, you don't have to worry about bathing them daily and what my family would say is you got to let them eat dirt. I mean, right, <laughs> this right. is a big range we're talking about here. Right. So what about when they're when they always have their hands in their mouth? So when they always have their hands in their mouth before they are going to be ingesting things or doing eating meals, it's a good idea to have them wash their hands. It's just teaching them good um, hand hygiene, which is going to translate for when they're sick too. So if they know how to wash their hands before regular meals, they will be better at, at being compliant about washing their hands when they're sick. And using good hand hygiene when you're sick is going to help prevent um, infections for other people um, and hopefully help them um, heal better. So if we talk about the, the way to clean your hands, should mm-hmm. we be using soap and water or should we be using the hand sanitizers? Great question. So the CDC has good guidelines on this. So generally, soap and water is best. Um, and hand sanitizer should only be really used if you don't have access to soap and water. Um, hand sanitizer, if you're going to use it, you want to make sure it has at least 60% alcohol content or higher. Um, but hand sanitizer isn't... Um, isn't going to get rid of all your germs and all your microbes in the same way with hand washing. Hand washing will only get rid of it as much as how thorough you are at your hand washing. There are certain infections that hand sanitizer won't be covered with, and I actually just learned at a conference that norovirus is one of those. Mm-hmm. So norovirus is the one you hear about with outbreaks on cruise ships. It causes that gastroenteritis that's pretty prolonged, miserable, lots of vomiting and diarrhea. And that's when you actually need to use hand um, soap and water and that physical contact of actually washing your hands is is what's going to be the most important in getting that that virus off your hands. The uh, antibacterial this or that Mm -hmm. uh, always I'm starting to give that a little bit of a suspicion because we're hearing about the overuse of antibiotics. Is there a bridge in between those two things? Yeah there is a bridge between like overuse of of antibacterial soaps and there's specific components in antibacterial soaps that we've been able to link I shouldn't say we but the science Mm -hmm. community has been able to link actually increasing um, antibiotic resistance by different mechanisms depending on the type of microbe that you're looking at. Um, We also see that overuse of prescribing of antibiotics, so inappropriate use of antibiotic prescriptions has also been linked to um, 
increase infections and also leading to antibiotic-resistant bugs. Um, and those antibiotic-resistant bugs do have a huge impact on our health and of our society. So we're seeing millions of, of infections related to antibiotic-resistant bugs each year, and the CDC quotes about 23,000 deaths per year related to antibiotic resistance. So we'll, as providers, um, we really need to, to practice what we call antibiotic stewardship, making sure that we are appropriately prescribing antibiotics. Um, when the most common thing I see kids in the in the office for when they're sick is for colds, viruses, runny nose, and cough. And and the CDC says about 50% of the time, antibiotics are prescribed inappropriately because those are viruses. They won't be treated by an antibiotic. Um, and so we need to make sure that we're appropriately prescribing those, and so that we can be part of helping decrease antibiotic resistance. Um, and then I also would make another pitch for hand washing. Hand washing in those situations um, when you're sick could actually reduce other people's getting sick um, by a good percentage. They, they quote about 30%. So it's important that you're sick to practice that good hand washing. That's why you can teach kids how to use it now. But it's also really important not to to teach your kids to be scared of germs um, <laughs> because there's it, it's... Um, it's important for them to, to not have like a phobia develop early on by maybe your own fears of germs. Um, we, do, we do see that maternal anxiety or maternal anxious features can increase behavioral problems in kids and can also lead to mental health problems in, in later childhood and adulthood. So don't be a helicopter parent running around your child with a bottle of hand sanitizer. Um, let them you know, explore their environment and let them eat dirt, as, as the new book coming out. <laughs> I, I can see everyone yeah. being, feeding their kids dirt. <laughs> so we, we talked about hand washing, but a frequent thing in our household is when the pacifier drops on the floor. Yes. And uh, even and we were on a plane recently and it dropped on the, pl- on the floor of the plane. And I was like, what do I do here? Should I wash it or should I give it to and them? I think just use common sense. If you're at home in a relatively clean environment, if it's been on the floor for a couple seconds, it's not going to, to to be seriously harmful to their health to put it back in. It might actually be helpful. You're exposing them to different microbes. You're allowing their immune system to practice um, responding and recognizing other things and deciding if it's something that's serious that they need to respond to or something that's not as serious and that they don't need to set off the whole immune system response. And I have to tell you, Dr. Kakar, you've got toddlers right now. You have to wait until you've got an 11-year-old boy like me who will eat Anything that is dropped anywhere, no matter what is on it. And if you're lucky, you can get him to blow off or wipe off whatever is stuck to the candy he dropped out of his mouth and then puts back in. So I just figure... It's his benefit that he's been eating dirt all these it's years. True. That keeps him it's safe. true. It's probably it's probably building up his immune system. You know, it's giving him all these little opportunities to practice. I um, shudder to think what he has eaten, but that's uh, another yeah. problem. For I thought day. you were going to say he's still using the pacifier at eleven. <laughs> no, he's good. He's very good. And the five second rule when it comes to kids, everything is a five second rule. Probably. I mean, if you're in a dirty environment, I wouldn't put your kid's pacifier back in. If you're in the hospital, I shudder to think what kind of microbes live in the hospital setting or out in a you know public place. But if you're at home in some place relatively clean, I think it's certainly fine to put back in their mouth. Um, it's a little bit controversial about whether you should put it in your mouth to clean it first. I don't know if you guys have heard that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, there was one study that came out that showed it decreased the risk of, of eczema and asthma. It's a pretty small study, though. Um, the American uh, Dental Association shuddered when that publicity came out because it was picked up by a lot of media. Their concern is that you're sharing microbes within your mouth, and that can increase the risk of dental caries because there are certain types of bacteria um, that, that we see if certain family members have it, the risk that their children, if they get that, will also increase their dental caries. So if you have bad oral hygiene, a lot of dental caries, I wouldn't I wouldn't put the pacifier <laughs> back in your mouth. We've been talking about building up immunities in children with pediatrician Dr. 
Angela Matke. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Matke. Thanks for having me. And that's our program for this week. For more information about topics discussed today, visit us on the web at Mayo Clinic News Network, where you can access a podcast of today's show, previously aired programs, and the latest news from Mayo Clinic. Tweet us your health and medicine questions anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio, or email us at mayoclinicradio at mayo.edu. We may answer your question during an upcoming program. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our senior producer is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Sanj Kakar sitting in this week for Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for being with us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice. And you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.